Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Then Again, the podcast at the Northeast Georgia History Center, where we bring you topics of all sorts from all places and all times. Today, we have pulled in someone from just up the road, Dr. Aaron Bush, who is a professor at the University of North Georgia. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Bush. And if you would, tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, and your general life history in a minute or less. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So, I am new to the North Georgia area. I've been here about three years. Very excited to be here. Loving it so far. I'm originally from West Virginia. I did my undergrad at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and my PhD from George Mason University in Fairfax. Broadly speaking, I'm a digital and social historian, so I study gender and crime and punishment in the United States. Chronologically, my specialties are the Gilded Age, the Progressive Age, the interwar period, so roughly the 1870s to the early 1940s. But I specifically look at how society and institutions are created to respond to crime, particularly in these periods, and how things like gender and age and race and class and all of those uh, have actually contributed to the ways that individuals have been defined as criminal. Okay, so... This has nothing to do with uh, what we want to talk about today, but how much did film noir play into your interest in those areas? Oh, I love film noir. <laughs> and I keep, you know, I keep joking that I have a class in the back of my head that I just need to put on paper and teach about detectives and gender and film noir and femme fatales and the detective and the whole situation. I love it. Okay, well, we'll put me down for the first audit, too. We'll do. Definitely take we'll it do. <laughs> we'll do. We'll watch all kinds of great films. Yay. But again, that's not why we're here today. You said that you are interested and study in digital history. That's why mm-hmm. we brought you here today to talk about that. We haven't had anyone really mention that. So could you just take okay. us th- through what you mean by that, sort of define your terms and why it is an area worthy of study? Sure, I can do that. I've adapted my definition um, from two scholars, Doug Seafelt and William Thomas. And my definition is that digital history is an approach to examining and representing the past that uses digital tools and technology to help us answer and ask questions about the past. That's what we do as historians, right? We ask questions, we use sources to answer them. So digital history allows us to ask new questions and answer those questions using technology, but it also allows us to ask old questions with new digital methodology. So what does that mean? Does, does that, that mean? That, what does that mean? Does that mean that when I look up some obscure person from the 1750s on Wikipedia that I'm taking part in digital history? Uh, potentially. It depends, right? So digital history is pretty broad. It really covers everything from how we present history using digital tools to how we actually study the past. So on one level, digital, and you can't see my scare quotes, but I'm using scare quotes around digital. Digital allows us to present history in new ways, right? So this podcast, right? We're talking about history. People can listen to it. We can tell great stories. They get it in 25 minutes in their car. Uh, Similarly, using video, interactive gaming, 3D models, augmented and virtual reality, we can tell stories about the past in new formats. Yes, Wikipedia is a new format, right? And early, early digital history was really about putting history on the web. Now we have really exciting technologies that allow us to play with those stories a little bit, and we can we can tell them in an immersive environment if we want. So that's one end. Um, we can digitize sources. We can make those sources available to a wider public by putting them online. So we have, you know, the Digital Public Library of America is an excellent source. Happy Trust is an excellent source. And they've had major projects where they're digitizing large collections of sources so that they're available to scholars and interested folks, you know, all around the world. So these are all new ways in which we can get at history. We can tell history uh, in new formats. On another level, digital history,
history as a methodological approach. And what I mean by that is doing history is framed by the power of digital technology. Mm -hmm. It allows us to define, to query, to analyze, to visualize uh, sources in new and interesting ways. So everything from mining enormous digital collections of sources for topics and themes, to computational methods, GIS statistics, to really using the hypertext environment of the web to analyze artwork, maybe, or photographs in situ, um, or to layer data across time and space with really complicated maps that there's no way you could publish in a book. Right. <laughs> right. All, of the, all of the methods that human beings, you know, cannot just do by themselves, you get a machine to help you now. Right. And, you know, we're, we're, we're about the same age. I think, you know, we, mm -hmm. when we first started working on our undergraduate degrees, we were probably still, we still had a good strong foot in that primary yep. sources, digging through the archives, smelling the musty old papers and things. Yep. Uh, and, and now we're in the stage where we immediately go online to see what kind of digital archives are available from universities mm -hmm. or from, you know, different libraries around the world and things like that. So it has definitely revolutionized things. What do you think it's done to the quality of scholarship. There's, you know, being the age we are, I know that some of our older professors grumbled that you just couldn't understand history without being in yeah. the archives. And yet there is so much more that every scholar has at their fingertips than they could have ever oh, yeah. dreamed of even 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we used to have a problem of availability, right? Can we actually physically get to the archive? Is it there? Do we have the funds to study in that archive? With digital, you know, with digitized sources, you don't have to worry about as much, you know, the funding, you know, asking you to travel across the, the globe to look at something. You can actually get it at your fingertips in the middle of the night in your bathrobe if you want, right? Yay! <laughs> so I, you know, I'm of the mind that digital is, it can potentially fundamentally change the way history is done, but it also can supplement and augment. So for example, the work that I do, I do a lot of work with data. I visualize data. I map data. I actually specifically look um, in one of the projects I have, I'm looking at incarceration data from the state of Virginia, where I've made a data source out of an analog book. I sat in the archives and I flipped through this analog admissions book for a juvenile reformatory. And I took pictures of it and I made a data set out of it. And then I've analyzed it technologically. So that is a hybrid situation where I'm in the archives, but I'm also using digital methodologies to understand that information. And in that respect, it's opening up new avenues to this scholarship that we've had for years, which, you know, my project works on juvenile delinquency. We've been studying juvenile delinquency since 1960s, but I have an opportunity to ask new questions because I have new sources. You know, I'm using an old source in a new way. Right. In other words. So I think, you know, there is this perception that digital is in some ways lesser, but the scholarly work that's being applied using digital technology is still scholarly work. It's different than somebody randomly putting something on Wikipedia, right? Right. And so I think the difference there is important not to assume that just because it's digital that it's of lesser quality, but to actually think about and understand how to look at that project and say, okay, is this a scholarly work similar to an article or similar to, you know, we have these standards in academia, the book 
in the in the peer-reviewed journal and etc. And you know, associations are starting to take it seriously. The American Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians actually publish reviews of digital projects now, which is really exciting because it's giving everybody a standard uh, to actually evaluate and look at some of these things and say, okay, is this actually scholarly work or you know what what is this and what kinds of questions are they asking and how are they using evidence and how are they answering those questions? I've got a great question I want to ask about the the sure. research and access side. Then I want to get you know presenting the research side in terms of digital. But I get in my experience, very limited though it may be, and, and please feel free to tell me I'm crazy or agree with me, either one. While on one hand, the access to digital history that we have, so many archives and libraries and, and resources around the world at our fingertips, as you say, mm-hmm. in our bathrobes is phenomenal. And yet, has that made it more challenging, more difficult to make good history because you're almost overwhelmed with the amount of data that you have to analyze to, quote, thoroughly study a subject? Yeah, I think there are a couple things going on there. Number one is we have an abundance problem. So like you said, uh, we have this challenge where you do a search and you get 7 million results. You know, what am I going to do with 7 million results? But if you have the the right question in mind, and those 7 million results might actually help you answer that question. And I think that's key. What is your question and Mm -hmm. what sources are you using to answer it? You could use technology to help you text mine. It's called text mining. You download all of those results and you use a computer to essentially to read it and to try to identify patterns and topics and themes that you might not be able to do by yourself. And the best example of this is modern presidential records. There's no way a single historian can go through President Obama's emails, right? right. It just isn't going to happen. But if you have them and you have access to them and they've been archived and digitized it well, I'm going to say well, because not everything mm-hmm. digitized well, but <laughs> if been digitized well, you can use a computer to help you read that, right? So we do have an abundance problem. We also have the challenge of just randomly searching without an actual direction or a good question in mind. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this earlier, but you know, the question is the key. If your question stinks, if your research <laughs> question is too broad, it doesn't matter if you're in a library or you're on the internet, it, you're going to have trouble. Right. right. World War II, enter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those problems still exist technology complicates them, (laughs) but they do still exist. But, you know, and I think there are other challenges that come with this. So number one, understanding how these systems actually work. Most undergraduate students use Google, but they don't know how search works and they Mm -hmm. don't know why they're not finding what they're not finding. And so, you know, know, getting and understanding, and I teach my digital students, you know, if you're going to go unleash yourself on the web, at least understand how the search engine is going to kick back results to you. (laughs) Right, right. You know, when you come to me and say, I can't find anything, you know, I can say, okay, Let's <laughs> let's back up and see what you've actually tried to do. But you know, the abundance problem is a real problem. And, and so really understand the other thing that's a challenge is the way that things get digitized and what gets digitized. So what the archive problem we have of what kinds of records, what kinds of people are prioritized in the archives. We add a layer to that now, which ones are worthy of digitization. Right. So that's compounding some of those archival challenges. I work with vulnerable populations. They're prisoners. They only show up in prison records and then never again. Genealogy has been a tremendous boon for me because 
those census mm -hmm. records are critical, you know, for people who are only going to show up in institutional records. Right, right. Um, no, I, I agree. I think, you yeah. know, quote, real historians have, have almost ignored the genealogist much to their detriment because we, in the museum mm -hmm. world, we have a saying, if you can't find something out, just give it to a genealogist. Oh, yeah. And man, those people find it, right? Yeah. And <laughs> even, and even the effort by, and I know they're behind paywalls and corporations and there's a whole discussion we could have about that. But the fact that they're digitizing random small town newspapers yes. and thing in them, I mean, that's amazing. So, so that's, historians. yes. <laughs> so that's the, that's the research side of digital mm -hmm. history. Let's, let's start getting a little bit into the presenting the research side of digital okay. history. And I saw that you had done a really cool webpage on a fascinating lady who had built these models about, is it Gless? Was that her name? Glessner. Glessner. Yeah. And so, so yeah, tell us, tell us about that. I think that was a graduate project, but it's, yeah. it's I think it's the perfect example of, of what you're talking about. Sure. So I did a project in a graduate class. It was actually a coding and programming project believe it or not. Huh. But the idea was, how are you thinking through how you might present history digitally? And using the benefits of hypertext and the visualization aspect to present history in ways that the book or the page just can't do. And you see this uh, really well with maps, you know, maps that can layer space and time. Uh, the Virginia Commonwealth University has a fantastic project on mapping the growth of the second clan. And it literally takes every clan clavern, uh, say that three times fast, every <laughs> clavern, and it puts it in its original location and then it maps the growth over time. And so you put this map, you animate this map, you put it in motion, and all of a sudden you see this explosion of KKK membership across the country. And so that you can, that hits you in the gut in a way that, you know, you could explain it in a paper, but a paper is just not going to have the same emotional resonance. Right. For my project, Death and Diorama, uh, these were, Francis Glessner Lee was the daughter of one of the Chicago farming agricultural machinery families. And I'm, I hesitate I can't remember which one off the top of my head. It's been a while since I thought about it. But she wanted to go to medical school and her parents wouldn't allow her. Of course, this would have been early 20th century, not something young women of that class did. So she took the very gendered skills she had, which was making miniatures, and she started making miniature crime scenes. And it's amazing. <laughs> it is. Yeah, well, yeah. we're going to put a link in the, uh, okay. in the in the text that goes along with this podcast too. If that's yeah. That's okay with you. That's fine. Absolutely. Yeah. But she, you know, she did these as models to help forensic or to help police departments learn forensic science. So this was around the time that we were switching from a coroner system to a medical examiner. Police detectives didn't know how to examine crime scenes in that forensic way. You know, they're, they're walking through crime scenes and getting their bloody footprints all over the scene. And so she used these models to help them pay attention to the details. And so what I did was they happened to be housed at randomly at the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office. I was going to school in Fairfax, Virginia. So I called them and said, can I come and look at your models? I'm also an amateur photographer. So I said, can I take pictures? So they let me free 
rained in this room uh, with all of these models. It was, it was amazing. And I took a bunch of pictures and I created a project out of it to really look at this woman and her contribution to forensics mm-hmm. in normally perceived to be a very male-dominated field. Right. So that's something that an average, normal, boring history student could have just written a paper about. But you use the power of technology and, yeah. and digital media and, as you said, the internet and HTML to make something that is more engaging. And I, I, I mean, is, is that pretty much what we're talking about or one side of digital history, right? It is. And I think it's an important side because, you know, humans tend to be visual creatures. And so if you are studying, say, and maybe it's not even photographs that you take, maybe you're looking at world war propaganda posters Mm-hmm. And you want to study them thematically. You know, there are systems that will allow you to present the visual. If you get permission, I know propaganda posters, you'll have to publish. But, um, you know, if you can present the poster and then analyze it in situ right next to the image. So you're, you're not flipping back and forth on a page. You're actually seeing it right there. And then you can start as the consumer of that. You can start to see your own trends. Potentially, you can group them in specific ways that even the author didn't think of about. Um, And so it gives a little bit more agency to the reader to navigate these projects the way they feel like they need to, as opposed to me as the author dictating, first you will read this paragraph and then you will read this. And and so it opens that up a little bit. I hesitate to use the word democratize because I don't think that's exactly what it is, but it does give the reader a little bit more agency and it puts the visual front and center, you know, whether it's a map, whether it's uh, posters or whatever it is you happen to be analyzing. But even in computational analysis, even if you're looking at something like data. For me, I published the data sets that I created that are going to be supporting my manuscripts. So people can take that data, my book manuscript. So people can take that data and they can do their own project. And that I think is what we used to, you know, what, what history scholarship is built on is that we're building on the work of others. And digital does that in new and interesting ways. I, and, and I totally agree. I'm, I'm so fascinated by what you're talking about, by what you're studying. And, you know, working in the museum field, it's very much more a, a public access sort of focus that we have. And we have found that digital media is just so much more engaging for the general public, although academia does tend to be entrenched in certain traditions. So yeah. my, my, here's my question for you. This is sort of one of those what ifs. How long is it going to be before theses, PhD, you know, dissertations and things like that? Are they going to be done in a digital presentation medium rather than just 200 printed pages? Are we ever mm-hmm. going to get to that point? Is that ever going to be something that is considered just as legitimate a presentation of research data as a as a as a printed piece. We're getting there. We're getting there. So there are some presses that are publishing digital projects in new and interesting ways. Stanford Press has one. I want to say Michigan State has one where they're and this is more than just an ebook, right? It, it's right. an digital project. However, that's defined. Some uni- colleges and universities have new standards for digital dissertations. Uh, George Mason, where I went, actually had has allowed digital dissertations and several of my colleagues defended those and got their PhD, which is really exciting. And so I think you're starting to see the tide turn. You're starting to see digital projects show up in tenure and promotion requirements. And the question is really, again, back to where we started this whole conversation, which is what is scholarly and what does that look like? And how is that translated into a new medium and not, is this just an article? Yeah, right. An an article on a Kindle, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Or a blog post on your personal blog or whatever. (laughs) 
<laughs> but how are you actually defining scholarship and how can you, how does it, how is it getting peer reviewed? You know, how, how are we understanding the work that went into it? And particularly when you're looking at something like data, you know, I, I did data entry for almost a year, you know, not seen by anybody, but that adds to, you know, digital is not necessarily easier. So, right. you know, the perception that, oh, you're just slap it up online and that's all good. You know, some of, um, I have some colleagues in the digital space and, you know, they do the pre-work, I'll call it pre-work, the cleaning and the programming and all of, you know, the Python code that's get, that gets written and the analysis using programs like R and what have you and the data entry and the cleaning up of that data. And it, it takes a long time to do that well. And so how are we rewarding that work, which is largely invisible, but still work and still scholarship. Right. For it to be true digital history, does it need to be interactive in some way? Do you feel like the consumer of that has to participate in getting the knowledge somehow? I don't think so. You know, I this is where I think some, some folks in my field will heartily disagree with, uh, because some people would argue that. I haven't, I argue that you can do what looks like traditional history using digital methods, and it's still digital. So for example, I'm writing a book, an actual book that's going to get published by a, a university <laughs> press and be in hard copy, but I'm my underlying work is all related to data and mapping that data. And so what I've done though, is I've used the visuals to help me identify patterns that I would not have seen just by flipping through the records and steer me in new ways, you know, in new questions about, you know, where are juvenile delinquents coming from in Virginia? Where are they actually mm -hmm. incarcerating them from? We hear of this as a story of urbanization then why are white girls getting incarcerated from mountain counties, right? I can tell you why. <laughs> In the 1920s, right? We, we know that story. Right. Big story. But it was the data that pointed me in this eugenics direction in ways that I don't think I would have seen or expected. So again, asking the right question to reach the right conclusions. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways to come at that in digital history is one. Yeah. And being willing to take the random results you get and say, What's this? <laughs> what does that mean? No, but digital is exciting, especially for public the public space. Museums and libraries can do really interesting things with digital technology, I think, in ways that, you know, the old brick and mortar, you still have that, but how are you augmenting that with digital? I've seen some really cool stuff in museums using digital. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a brave new world. Mm -hmm. And uh, the older I get, I'm getting promudging I'm glad I won't see all of it. <laughs> so that's enough. You know, I'll, I'll finish complaining and we'll finish our conversation. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for being with us today. This is a, it's a very new topic and I'm glad we got someone on the cutting edge to help us understand it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Folks, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode. Thanks to Dr. Bush. And until then, just stay safe, take care and keep listening. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.